following podcast is sponsored by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Robots vs. Dinosaurs recommends Daryl Lee Australian Licorice for all your candy cravings. Robots vs. Dinosaurs is a proud member of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Check out Apocalypse Podcast Network for more great podcasts. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. Contact. Transformers 1986, Star Wars Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, Cocoon, Cocoon 2, The Return, Star Wars Episode 6, Return of the Jedi, Men in Black, Halo, Combat Evolved, Eliza Peterson's TikTok videos, AI, Artificial Intelligence, and Jurassic Park. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week, I am talking to my good friend, actor, performer, movie lover, David Lanson. Hello, David. Hi, Lou. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm hanging in there. It's a good day. It's nice and cool today. Excellent. Yeah, it is gorgeous out. And we're inside, but that's okay. We'll, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to enjoy some of the sunshine. <laughs> that's David. exactly right, yeah. Yeah, why don't you tell the guests what movie we are going to be talking about today? We are going to be talking about Batteries Not Included, one of my favorite 80s movies, as well as one of my favorite robot movies. That's right. I wrote down asterisk, Batteries Not Included, lowercase b, <laughs> lowercase n, lowercase i, uh, the 1987 Matthew Robbins movie written by Brad Bird and Mark Garris. Is this, David, is this the same, The Incredibles, Brad Bird? That is exactly the right, it's the exact same guy, yeah. Yeah, I was, you can see a lot of, something that's very classic in this kind of movie, and I think comes up a lot in Brad Bird's work, which The Incredibles, of course, is a perfect example of this, where family is the centerpiece of the story. It's, it's, it's some, very often, it's a non-conventional family coming together from different backgrounds and they're united by some sort of phenomenon that they all mutually experience. This is something that I've noticed in in a lot of 80s movies in general, but especially movies that are attached to Steven Spielberg in some way. That's exactly right. Yeah, it seems to always be the kind of the nucleus. It's like a group, especially a family. And you see that in The Incredibles. You see that um, even in Ratatouille, Brad Bird's work as well, future work, where you have like friends coming together and kind of they're opposing a force and it's always, there's always humor and there's always a lot of love. So this movie came out in 1987 and it is a Steven Spielberg presents film. The movie opens with a shot of a lot of Polaroids of New York city. It captures this, this fascination that I noticed in a lot of eighties properties, a lot of movies and television shows where the eighties had this, this nostalgia for the 1940s and fifties, especially there was, you know, Happy Days, Grease, a lot of these interesting 80s nostalgia. So this is another example of that. And it's, we were seeing all of these idyllic old timey photos. There's this big swing music playing in the background. When it finally transitions into video, it's this sepia toned kind of depressing video of bulldozers knocking down all these buildings. And, uh, and then we just see this sort of montage of extreme poverty, this, this 1987 economic crisis visualized in this normalized extreme poverty in the city. Finally, that lands on, this opening shot sort of lands on Faye, 
our our hero <laughs> of this movie, Jessica Tandy, our protagonist of this movie, I would say. And uh, with, right. it, with I, I wrote down a classic cigarette in the mouth reaction shot. I love a good cigarette in the mouth reaction shot. And she had the great cigarette extender too, with the mismatched shoes, which of course we come upon later. Why that's happening? But you're right. She's like in her classic mumu from like the 1960s, and she's just walking through all that bulldozed neighborhood, kind of without a care in the world. It's almost like her her ability to walk past it with kind of an air of like it's a normal afternoon was kind of foreshadowing her resistance to what was going on around her. So David, I want to ask you this and I want to, because I want to talk about this early on because it's a big, big theme in the movie. And I think it it becomes, what I love about sci-fi is how we can use sci-fi as a filter to tell certain stories as a filter is not the right word. It's more, more of like a, like a parallel of something, an analogy of something else that we can yeah. use it to tell a story that we really want to tell about the human experience. So this movie, I really want to get into, don't worry about spoilers or anything. We're, we're assuming people have watched the movie before listening. So why, okay. is, why is it that Jessica Tandy's character, that Faye walks through this, this neighborhood without a care in the world, with her head in the clouds, sort of, with mis- mismatched shoes. Um, it seems that Faye's um, dealing with either early onset or what has been going on for a few years, some dementia, uh, maybe early Alzheimer's. And it's um, kind of put her in this place. Um, sorry about that. No worries. All New York. Um, <laughs> it gives, uh, she's been going through, um, she has a early onset dementia, and it's kind of put her in this place of, thinking of the neighborhood and her relationship to it in kind of a, a backwards glance to it. So she sort of feels like she's still in the neighborhood of her being a mom early on in her life and having just moved into that neighborhood and kind of created a life there. So that's, you, you find that out when she walks up to the building and human Cronin can't find her as well as their neighbor are looking for. Her. So it becomes pretty clear that she's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily know what's going on around her. She doesn't, yeah. I, so I'm going to use certain words that I, I really want to hone in on. So her, her, her heart seems to be ever-present. Every time she's on screen, her heart is, is right out. It's, it's, it's on her sleeve. And she offers yeah. it to anybody that's around her. Her heart is ever-present. Her mind, though, is what's called into question. What I think is interesting that I think is a big question this movie is asking, and it's using robots as an analogy to ask us, is is really like, what is the soul? And is the soul your heart or your mind? If you don't have the capacity of your mind, you know, are you still the same person? Because it seems like Faye's major driving quality is her capacity for love and her love of her family and her love of, of just taking care of people around her. Everyone in her life sort of accepts her for the way she is because yes, she seemed to be she seems to be stuck in a loop, but it seems to be a loop of joy. I'm not qualified to make this judgment. I'm not a doctor, but I don't know if it's I don't know if it's an accurate representation of that type of mental health issue, but it is the way the movie characterizes her. And and I would say it does a really good, it makes her very intrepid. It makes her very, a very positive protagonist for us to root for, in my opinion. Yeah, and it makes her stalwart in the face of the actual reality around her. And she even affects the people who are involved in the redevelopment of this particular region of the neighborhood. Even they, in the face of her joy, are kind of taken aback 
because it, it's a little bit, it's, it's, it's different, I think, than they presume someone will be reacting to, to what's going on. And I agree completely that the joy comes through always. There's, there's kind of an ongoing story with faith throughout where each time there's somewhat of conflict or things have to be adjusted, she's always there. She's kind of always going with the flow. So she truly is the heart of the movie. Yeah, she's the heart of the movie. She's the heart of this neighborhood. She's the nucleus that everything is is centered around and revolves around. For obvious reasons, she has just a natural charm and a natural gravitational pull. Yeah. A lot of that is owed, to, of course, to Jessica Tandy. Are you are you a fan of Jessica Tandy's work in general? So much so. She's so exceptional. I kept noting when I'm taking a few notes watching the movie how her smile affected me so much each time, and it just it's a testament to how a wonderful an actor that Jessica Pandy was. Yeah. She's also known for Cocoon, which we also see uh, Hume Cronin in. They, I just found this out today. We were talking about this, um, that they are married in real life. And that's why they always seem to play this charming old married couple in every movie they're in. I meant to look it up how many movies they've done together. It's many. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure the exact amount, but the two that I can name that I've definitely seen are Cocoon and Batteries Not Included. Yeah. Which Cocoon right. is another like sci-fi, using sci-fi to tell this touching human, heartwarming tale. Yeah, and this I, I learned that Jack Horner, who did the, uh, the score for Batteries Not Included, also did it for the sequel to Cocoon. I didn't know there was a sequel to yeah, Cocoon. It, there is a sequel to Cocoon, yeah. <gasps> um, it's actually called... I, if I can find the name, I'll the look it up. Man but um, <laughs> um, it was <laughs> the uh, the yeah. It's actually the same score. Batteries not included as Cocoon, the sequel. Um, Interesting. And I'll pull up the yeah. It's the same kind of jazzy sound that you hear throughout, and it's it's obviously an allusion to like what the neighborhood was like and the music of. Well, I, I think it's between Avenue A or Avenue C and D on 8th Street in Alphabet City in Lower East Side in Manhattan. Kind of a testament to that uh, time period. Yeah, it's called yeah. Cocoon the Return. That's the sequel. <laughs> okay. And have you seen Cocoon the Return? Cocoon 2? I think I think I have. It's been a long time. Cocoon the first one, I think. Uh, but once every five years, I, I go back to that one. Back to Cocoon. Cocoon. Back to Cocoon. <laughs> cocoon the Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> cocoon the revenge yeah. <laughs> that's right oh man yeah I, I really want to see the gritty reboot of cocoon now i wonder if they'll ever redo it yeah mm. wilford brimley who will play him yeah oh my goodness well maybe Whoopi goldberg or danny devito <laughs> we can call them up <laughs> i have the, i have them both on speed dial so that's wonderful <laughs> so okay so we see uh we see this neighborhood and we see the center of what is going to be the major set piece of our of our movie, Riley's Cafe. It's sort of the ground floor of this apartment building where what starts as small vignettes of like different apartments and the inhabitants of different parts, apartments of this building and their lives, we start seeing just little bits of their stories and then they, how they intersect and how they start to come together until they form this group. So I, I listed six people are in this group. We've got Faye, talked about her husband, Frank, who runs the diner, he owns the diner, constantly, you know, sweeping up and cleaning up after no customers and <laughs> cooking for no customers. Yeah, um, empty diner, it's so sad. It's It very much represents like the economic downturn of this time, of course, 1987. So we've got Faye, we've got Frank, Marissa, who we don't, I don't think we find out her name until I wrote down like 43 minutes into the movie, uh, Faye literally has a line where she says, what is your name, dear? 
And that's when I learned her name was Marissa. But she's a big character, as well as Mason, the, the uh, painter. And, of course, Harry Loco, the locomotive. Uh, so these are our heroes. These are our protagonists. And we, we sort of see their, their day-to-day lives. We see how the neighborhood is falling apart, quite literally. And it's being sped along by various agents. We see there are direct, I'm not sure what to call this group of people. There went, so, for, for example, when, when Marissa comes home, the first time we, we're introduced to Marissa, she's wearing a blue dress, she's visibly pregnant, and we see her have to push through about half a dozen cat collars sitting on her stoop. These guys sort of follow her in, they offer her a check for getting out of her apartment. And we find out that these guys call themselves the Knock Knock Boys. And they are going around trying to terrorize the, 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 the residents of this building, literally smashing parts of the neighborhood, a lot of the structures and things down to pieces to motivate people to leave. And I guess they've been, they've been hired, we find out later, they've been hired by this large corporation to come in and, and sort of be these, uh, these Knock Knock Boys, <laughs> go around and try to push people out of their homes. Uh, <laughs> and An anachronism, I feel like, of maybe even the '50s, where you had like hired, like you know, you had hired muscle who would go around trying to get people out of buildings and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very poignant, and it's very um, it's very terrifying the way that it's it's portrayed in the movie and and uh, the way that they terrorize these these people. But I really want to say. This actor that plays Carlos, who's sort of the leader of the group, uh, Michael Carmine. Yeah. This performance mm-hmm. is incredible. It's so watchable. He steals the screen every every time he's there. He's, he's just an, a, an absolute delight. I'm so um, glad you mentioned him. I, I couldn't agree more. He was a wonderful presence in the entire movie. And really, you just felt it for this. Like I think he was 26 or 27 when they filmed it. And you can just see how yeah, he did such a great job of embodying this this kid who's got this really big job of leading these other guys and trying to be the, the the bad guy and you kind of come to find out that you know there's a lot more there for him it's not just that yeah um he was really young this actor michael carmine he actually passed away two years after this movie 1989 he's very very young a couple of his other credits he was in mash he was in this movie this great sci-fi movie leviathan uh, in 1989 but yeah, in this movie, he really actually goes through quite a journey, quite a, a change. And we see it from beginning to end. He's clearly the villain at the beginning. So much so, like he's, obvi- he's obviously this force that is causing destruction in these people's lives. But it's so much deeper than that. We, we have this monologue from him later on in the movie, about half an hour into it, where he is upset just because everybody, he sees everybody else happy and coming together. He quite literally says, they got something hooked up. They're getting organized. Look at us. Some, somebody's helping them. Somebody's bringing them together. And he looks just disgusted by this. Um, <laughs> That's right. It's in contrast to the, the group of people he's with, who he doesn't feel any connection with. Because throughout the movie, these guys are always poking fun at one another. And there's not a lot of love involved. There's, there's a lot of love lost between them. It's not like there's a there's no loyalty necessarily with this band of people. Yeah, this is a very I would I would call this a very like heightened reality. Even though this movie is not directed by Steven Spielberg, I I, I feel his 
his artist's touch on quite a lot of it. A lot of the performances, a lot of the set pieces, but especially this this family dynamic that eventually comes together in this strange way. And yeah, Carlos is kind of an example of this very heightened reality version of this character, this leader of a gang that terrorizes people in a PG-13 way, never crosses a certain line that he can't ever be redeemed from, that the end of the movie can't eventually redeem him from, you know? That's right. <laughs> I actually, I wrote, the, I, I started this section when I was watching the movie, I was taking notes and I started the section called, uh, hey David, do you know how I know this is an 80s movie? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, <laughs> one of the instances I wrote down was a guy in a limo drives up sees two people dancing in the diner and immediately calls the cops from his car phone. <laughs> also later when the robots or spaceships or we're going to get we're going to get into what they are show up the uh, artist Mason calls two different military bases to report this and at no point in the movie does the CIA or anybody show up to investigate this this insane claim that they're making. Right, right. You assume he's on the phone with people who are like, what is this guy talking about? I even wrote down, he referred to them, he couldn't think of what to call them. And and while searching in his mind for them, my favorite line of his is, microchip hovercraft? Just to come <laughs> up with something to loosely describe what's going on in front of him. <laughs> David, I love that you brought that up because I wrote down everything that Mason called them. <laughs> so he started with experimental aircraft, robots, auto gyros, smart bombs, microchip microchip hovercrafts later on when we see i oh god i don't i i don't want to jump to this moment just yet but when we see the robo babies he says machines that reproduce themselves spare parts with intelligence living hardware he just comes up with these really great condensed phrases these really awesome sound bites for what the how to describe all of these things it's like this is what happens when you have a uh, late 80s artist from the lower east side describing some sci-fi event in front of them it's very artistic it's a very creative way of going about looking at it it's great was it buzz aldrin that when he went into space and he said they should have sent a poet was it buzz aldrin right. and yeah, this is what we could have gotten if a, a poet had gone to the moon instead or if mason if we had sent mason to the moon instead so uh, well i'm also impressed by mason also our introduction to him is he gets out of a car after carmine has kind of beat up the place and made it kind of look a little less charming than it originally did and he has with him someone from the city who's he's trying to convince to preserve it to to claim that it's a historical landmark right Mm -hmm. david what neighborhood did you say that this took place in lower east side well alphabet city alphabet city yeah his uh that's his introduction we and then we we see mason we see his girlfriend leaving his apartment and i love her exit speech i wrote down part of it where she said, this is the 80s, Mason. Nobody likes reality anymore. (laughs) I laughed so hard. (laughs) (laughs) That, I laughed at that. And then she exits with finally, you never once asked to paint me nude. What a line. (laughs) In or out of any context, what a line. Great. Uh, So (laughs) we see her leaving. And shortly after we see Faye, being ferried off to a home, or it seems like some of her family has come to collect her and, you know, put her put her up in a, a facility or something. We see this scene where she doesn't really realize what's going on. And she's talking to Frank and she says, Frank, there's our bags. It's the love boat to Cuba. Shuffleboard, pineapples filled with rum. You know what they do? They put little paper umbrellas sticking out the top. So when it rains, it don't thin out the liquor. 
And I, this is the, I wrote that down because this is the moment I fell in love with Faye. <laughs> yeah. She, it's, it just, it's, you can see her old, her, their entire life together kind of come to the brim. It's like all of their wonderful time together as a couple is just right there at the surface for her all the time. And because she, that moment that she's thinking back to a time and a place distant is because of their neighbors actually moving out of the building. And so it's a somber moment, but what she sees in it is the joy of their past vacations and past, you know, excitements. Yeah, that's a good way to put it that like it's it's always right there on the surface with her. She's she just has this enthusiasm for everything. She can get excited about anything and make you excited just by being around her and just her describing it. We get a little bit more of Marissa's character after this when we just see her do something that I I only see people in movies actually doing. I don't know, David, I'm going to ask you if you've ever done this in real life. Have you ever just stood in your room by a window and just picked up a photograph, just kind of looked at the photograph for 10 to 20 seconds, maybe reached your finger out and stroked the face of the photograph? Not, not, not to my mind. I don't remember doing anything like that ever. No. No, because I'd say maybe if I do that, I spend at the most five to 10 seconds of my life a week uh, doing it. It's, um, yeah. it's something, but it's something I see in movies and it's always right at the moment when a painting is about to drop onto her fire escape or something that catches her attention because she wasn't really doing anything or living a life <laughs> inside of this movie. She was just there no, she to just witness needs, the painting yeah. fall. We need to get her to the window. How can we get her to the window? Let's have this really nice moment of just, you know, yeah, thinking out loud. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this this sort of is how we we see Marissa and Mason intersecting. She sees his paintings fall and she ends up uh, collecting them. Or I guess later the robots collect them for her. But either way, she ends up amassing a collection of all of his paintings. And she really admires his work and she sees something in it. And she sort of later is is his muse or his reason for believing in his art and and you know he had, he seems very cynical at the moment we meet him in the movie he is trying yeah. very hard to save the building he's trying to save the residents and everything and he's very passionate but we also kind of see everything falling apart around him and he's and he's losing hope and i think Mar- what marissa sort of represents for mason in, is like hope and she gives him a lot of perspective. I agree, yeah. And, and in a way they didn't really even know one another existed in the building. Uh, throughout the throughout the, the movie, you actually hear people refer to themselves as their apartment numbers. So even when they first meet, which is after the first, it's after Carmine had broken down Mason's door and put a hole in it. And after uh, Marissa had broken her saint, her little figurine, they talk to one another. And when they first see each other, he goes, oh, I'm 3B. That's the first introduction almost of them noticing one another. And then you see her, yeah, you, you see her watch the paintings fall and you see her look down at them as if it's like so much lost. And it's the con- conflicting artist. It's, it's a very well-constructed kind of world within a building, which is what I love so much about this movie. That's a really excellent point that I didn't notice that they refer to themselves as their apartment number before they actually get to know each other. I want, I want to give this movie as much credit as possible. I do think that's a deliberate attention to detail by the writer and director because that is something that as i think a recurring theme in the movie 
the just how how a name is important when these robots do show up they might be you know they might refer to themselves in this way it's a popular convention in a lot of robots and sci-fi movies that robots will just have a designation number or a model number or a serial number and that's what they refer to themselves as until they make a human friend and then they're named something uh like in this movie for example flotsam and jetsam which are adorable cute names that immediately you're like oh that makes sense and that's very fitting but you could imagine Imagine that when these things show up, these orange, they're just orange and blue. That's the only thing you can really distinguish them is the glowing colors of their eyes. Um, They might as well be 1B, 3B, you know, 2A. And it's not until they interact with people and start giving things and getting gifts in return and just trading favors and like doing weird things, but just forming bonds that they get named and they become characters. Yeah, that's very fascinating that it's we see that with the humans before we see that with the robots at all. And there's also another aspect to that, if I can add on to it, please, where please. Hume, Hume Cronin being him and Jessica Taney's characters for the, the Rileys being, having been in the building for decades, when they are first sort of introduced in the movie to Marissa and their neighbors, when they introduce themselves, Hume Cronin's way of kind of cataloging them is, oh, you're in so-and-so's apartment, which is a reference to their original neighbors who lived there when they first moved into the building. And so you can kind of see that even even they who've been in the building for that long also have no relationship with these these neighbors. And the reference point is past, the past people. And that's the point in which they become current friends when they kind of, be, they go from being, oh, you're the tenant in this particular old apartment. Oh, but now you're Marissa. And it's a really nice kind of transition into the naming and referencing, you know? Yeah, so it seems like the movie is deliberately withholding names from us until we get to know the characters because at that point the characters get to know each other. That's also a really good point. Frank and Faye are quite literally stuck in the past. Faye, of course, her mind is trapped in a certain trauma point in her past that we that's revealed much later and yeah it's interesting that frank is referring another great detail i didn't notice frank is referring to everybody by the previous residents of a, of a time long gone that lived in the apartment a long time ago that is amazing so f- bring it back to frank frank in the same night that we see marissa see the paintings fall frank is trying to help Faye take medicine we get this kind of endearing but also very kind of sad moment where he tries to get her to say ah and she says no we say frog and um, such a sweet moment and he's trying so hard and he's you know struggling and and carlos just busted up his diner and he prays uh and he just says please somebody help us and then the camera goes up to the roof and we're introduced to the 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 things in this movie the uh microchip hovercrafts in this movie so david before we get into these guys I want to ask you one of the questions that I like to ask all of my guests. In your description, your your own words, what is a robot? A robot. A robot is a it's a very good question and it's it's you think it would be, you know, like an obvious answer but it's actually pretty complex. A robot to me is a electronic device either mirroring a life form or a life, a life, yeah, a life form or not, who can independently control itself for a specific purpose. I don't know if that's too convoluted, but that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, yeah, I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of interesting stuff in that answer. They represent a life force or they represent a life form, I think is what you said. And mm-hmm. 
yeah, the almost said life force though. Oh yeah. Well, I think it's a very interesting and deliberate design choice, visual choice that these robots have glowing eyes because we are, we, the movie immediately wants us to believe that they have life literally within them, that, that from the inside out, they are literally glowing with life. They're teeming with exuberance, with just enthusiasm, with a, with a, some kind of force that's driving them to be kind, to be, I I almost want to use the word altruistic, but obviously they're not humans, but just to be, you know, generous to a technologically parallel species. I don't know if they're necessarily more advanced than we are, or in some ways they are, in some ways they're not. But yeah, it's just, it's it's really hard to, 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 to really lock down what is a robot exactly. But I do, I do kind of agree that like they need to have some sort of driving life force. Right. That there's some sort of, they're compelled to either do or perform in a certain way. And again, I think that can mirror biological life forms or in some other way, they're compelled to to act on their own accord. And and in this movie, they all are. And in a way they have, their dispositions are very human-like, even though there's no, they're not communicating in any way other than with their the eyes the color of their eyes and also their movements that's the way they communicate with the humans in the movie as well as their eyebrows they have very active brows in this movie which i appreciate <laughs> yes it, it's a it's man it's it's a, they're very r2d2 these robots the design of them they're very trash can looking cylindrical they're very deliberately not human form like a symmetrical human form they do look like frisbees or, or flying saucers or, you know, depictions of what like an alien spacecraft would be. David, I want to ask you, are the robots that we see in this movie, are they robots or are they aliens? Or third option, are they, is it both? Are they robots from space, from some other planet? That was what I wrote down here. Is, a, is an alien that looks robotic still a robot in the world it comes from or is it if it's the if they are an originating well i don't even know if can i use the word species when i refer to a robot now that's a good question is the originating if they come from a planet because we never really know we do hear hume cronin's idea that they come from a small planet because they are themselves small and of course we'll get to the end of the movie later on where i feel like there's a lot of context for this but yeah i i think that they are both alien and robot at the same time i like that combination I think it makes sense because I don't think they're from Earth. I'm starting to think that Mason, when the, the movie depicting Mason's phone call to the two military bases, I'm assuming he's calling the, the Air Force. Maybe he tried to call NASA. Maybe he tried to call the Navy or something. But at the, the mm-hmm. almost certainly tried to call the Air Force. And I'm assuming that that is in the movie to prove to us, the audience, that these are not a military experiment, these are not something that was like a weapon that we designed and it got out of our control, right? I think that is an option that would be on the table. And it's certain, certainly something I would consider or have a fan theory about this movie as like a backstory if there was a prequel to it, explanation for where these things came from. But I think that that, that phone call, the fact that nobody responds when he reports it, they don't take it seriously, means that there's no cover up. So I don't think that that's where they came from at all. I think it's much more likely that they came from space, that they came from another planet. So yeah, that does beg the question, are these some sort of organic being in a mech suit that they've built for themselves? And when they're collecting our metal in pieces, are they just building mech suits to put organic 
whatever their organic forms, whatever that looks like inside of it? Or are they living technology, quite literally a living machine? A machine that almost like transformers in that way. Yeah. Mm, yes. Yeah, like living yeah. technology. Right. Yeah. Transformers is very philosophical about this question, to be honest. And that's, that's no understatement. I, I am, I, I reviewed the 1986 Transformers animated movie with a guest on a previous episode of this podcast. And I can conclude right here. Now I am not qualified. I have not read enough of the Transformers source material to be qualified to answer or, or like land on where Transformers answers that question or its answer for it. Just that it, it asks that question quite a bit and so does this movie. So here's another option, just because of the framing of when we see Frank saying, please somebody help us and then boom, they show up, jump cut to their arrival. David, are, they, are these angels? Are they angels is a wonderful question. You know, they're... <laughs> Of course they are, because what's yes, absolutely. Because what 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 else could they be? Because even if the even if it's simply happenstance that regardless of the the conflict going on with the people of this building, would they have shown up anyway? You know what? Even if they were going to, they certainly showed up at just the right time. So in a roundabout way, yeah, I believe they are angels. I like that a lot. Yeah, Frank has this wonderful line later where he says, "The quickest way to end a miracle is to ask it why it is." or what it wants. He just accepts this. As soon as they show up, he just accepts their help because nobody else is helping him and, and he just needs it. So he's not going to look at you know, like gift horse in the mouse or, or the, a gift robot alien from space in its glowing eyes. I wrote down the same line. I, that, I think it might be the most affecting line for me in the entire movie because it speaks to someone who has seen a lot and lived a long life and they know that you take... It's, it, there's a wisdom in it you take the miracles that come to you and you don't question them and you don't analyze them. You accept them. And you, I love that. Can you say the, can you say the line just so the audience can hear it in your, in your golden voice, David? Yes. The, the line being the quickest way to end a miracle is to ask it why it is or what it wants. It's just, it's so poignant in that moment because I think he's talking to Mason and of course, Mason is the artist, creative type. He's trying to figure out exactly what's happening. And it's almost like he's, he's requesting, don't do that. Let's just, let's just accept what, what we see in front of us. And he definitely brings Mason around to his way of thinking about them. Mason is very scientific in his approach at first. He's trying to take them apart to see what makes them work. One of them gets right. offended when he does that and slaps his hand away. And Wasn't I think it that's, amazing when you looked right in its eye? <laughs> yeah, it was. And the way that they did that miniature, that sort of Tron world shot of inside of it was very fascinating. I think it was just enough to pique my interest and not answer enough of my questions, but keep me interested in what are these things for the rest of the movie. Can I tell you what my first impression was? Yes, please. Because please. I, I, just like you, I have not seen this movie probably since the early 90s, maybe mid 90s. First of all, the the look of it, the graphics themselves of the inside of these of the fix its brain of the dad or the or the or not even a dad but just one of them it, it's incredibly precise and you see within it these beams of light and they're all intersecting and they're all moving very quickly and the first impression i got was that this is a this is almost a world within itself that within it is contained almost smaller potentially smaller robots or smaller beings i don't even know but you're right it gives just a glimpse and just enough to make you want more but it doesn't give you anything more I want to hone in on something you said. You called them fix-its. I think that's gonna that's a very useful term. Does the movie calls them that? Or is that like your term? It does call them that. Oh, fix awesome. 
Yes, that's a really good term. Okay, fix it. Yeah, it's the ending of Men in Black, isn't it? That that the camera yeah. he's got the the marble in the locker. It zooms in, it zooms in, it zooms in. It's another galaxy, another galaxy, and then and then then it zooms out all the way, and Earth is just a marble inside of a bag of marbles. Right. That and like it's just this giant thing playing marbles, and right. this is sort of the in, inverse of that. We're just seeing this microscopic world. So yeah, perhaps another theory, or not another theory, but an evolution of the. Theory theory of them being robots or something from space. What if these are nanobots? Like what if we zoomed in even further on whatever was inside of there, you know, fixing or doing whatever they're doing, the robot things they're doing inside of this robot. What if we zoomed into those and they have even smaller robots doing the same thing inside of them? And, and we zoom in, there's even smaller robots and just smaller and smaller nanobots, you know? We often think when we think of space and we think of the endless amounts of space that are that's in space, we, we, we think big, we think out. But, but you're right. Why not? Why couldn't there be a civilization or multiple civilizations or even universes within these? Because if you get small enough, you're right. If you go close enough and close enough, each of those little beams of light that we get such a small glimpse of could themselves be other fixits or other worlds in which fixits exist and that they're self-perpetuating. Because that's one of the themes is that these fixits act almost like biological beings. I mean, they are in a way kind of mimicking that lifeline. Like we even see later on a little bit of swooning and I would call it sky robot sex. That's my, that, that would be my term. <laughs> yep, definitely. <laughs> well, the moment that I love is that Hume Cronin is so confusing. He goes, what are they doing? And Faye just looks at him and goes, you don't know? <laughs> yeah. What do you think they're doing? So, they're yes. Doing? I think the fact that they are driven to reproduce themselves, that they are, they're most likely nanobots that created larger versions of themselves. They're continuing to create larger versions of themselves or maybe expand on themselves. Perhaps it's what we're actually seeing as a colony of beings represented in like one floating disc form. It's again, the movie wants us to ask these questions, but doesn't want to answer them. And I think that's a good thing. I think that it's, it's like Hume Cronin says, it's like Frank says, we don't, if we ask it why it is, if we explore it too much, then we're taken out of the the miracle. We're taken out of the magic of the movie itself. And that's okay because that's what this podcast is trying to do. We want to unpackage every little minutia detail because I want to talk about how great it is and how much it adds to the experience of the movie. But I, I will say that this is robots versus dinosaurs, not uh, robots versus angels or Dinosaurs versus angels. We saw how that one worked out already. Meteor <laughs> one, <laughs> dinosaur zero. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I do. I think it's. I think it's fair to look at them in that way. To call them angels and you know say and just conclude. Okay, yeah. From a certain point of view, that is exactly what they are. Guardian guardian yeah. angels, benevolent protectors, whatever term you have for them. That's what they are. And, okay, something that the movie does, the, the cinematography of the movie does, is puts us in their POV for a moment. And I think when we, this is when they first arrive and they sort of hover outside of Faye's window, we get this shot from their view as they're floating into the room and they sort of sneak up on her in her bed. And from this right. point up until a certain point, the movie is, if it had different background music, I would think that we're about to, it's about to take a churn into a horror movie because we mm -hmm. see Faye waking up in her bed, her, 
she's got there's strange sounds, there's strange lights, and she's following them. And then the movie gets away with stuff like Faye is following just a toaster being dragged along by its its extension cord like a tail. And it's not at that point, it's not showing us what's dragging it. It's not spending money. It's, it's The movie's not spending its budget on the special effects in those shots because it doesn't have to. It's already established what these mystery things are. And the very clever thing is now it's showing us from Faye's perspective. Faye has already been proven to be an unreliable narrator. And we're going into her perspective as this toaster is being dragged up a staircase and into a pigeon coop, et cetera, et cetera. But again, they're getting away with this really cool stuff where it's it's not showing us the glowing special effects that we came to see, right? We bought a movie ticket to see them and they're hiding them from us. And David, this is something I notice in a lot of movies. Do you notice it a lot? I call it the Spielberg technique. It's when you have a huge budget, you have great special effects, you have incredible artists like Stan Winston or Phil Tippett or just amazing special effects artists working on your movie and you hide the special effects from the audience on purpose. It's almost like, it's like whimsy. They want to have whimsy involved in the movie, not just the spectacle of what they can create with their own technology. It's actually, I like, I like what you just said. It's exactly a very Spielberg thing to do because it reminds me of moments in ET. It reminds me in a few different moments in different Spielberg movies where it's almost like if this could have been done at any period, whether it's filmmaking or any, any time period, this is exactly what you need to see because in a way it's sort of a human perspective. It's no longer something fantastical. It's something very commonplace that's being affected by the life form, by the robot, the whatever. Yeah, that's, it's, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, it's, it's restraint. It's confidence in the special effects that you don't need to just keep them on screen the whole time. I feel like some directors get into this idea of, well, you know, we paid a lot of money for this big dinosaur. We paid a lot of money for this, this moving robot. We want to show it as much as possible. We want to put it on screen as much as possible. And I think when you show some restraint and you either hide it from the audience or always show it from the human's perspective, you actually capture the audience's imagination a lot more. And you put them in the POV of the characters they're seeing on screen. So you identify with them. You're along for their journey. And that includes their emotional journey. And I think that's why this movie is one of the reasons why this movie is so effective. Completely agree. And specifically with this scene where Faye notices the toaster being dragged, there's something playful about it, too, that you might not necessarily get a sense of if you actually saw the fix itself dragging the toaster up. It's sort of a playful way of getting Faye to first get out of the building and go to the rooftop where they're staying in their old bird coop, right? Yeah, I like that. The restraint itself is sort of, it's almost asking the audience to be involved in the story itself. Yeah, and this, there's a lot of moments of genuine heart and love and Frank and Faye being very sweet to each other. And then we see Carlos again. Carlos, I'm obsessed with Carlos. Every time Carlos shows up, I'm I'm just, he just has this presence. You know, he has this energy that he just brings with him that you're just, you're just amped up when he, when he shows up. You're just on high alert because Carlos is around. He's going to do something. He's going to affect something. He's going to be this agent of chaos. And he, one thing I, I think is really interesting that they characterize about him is he is proud of his work, no matter what his work is. Whether that's delivering eviction notices to every tenant in the building as quickly and efficiently as possible. Whether it's scaring as many of the tenants into leaving as he can by destroying their property as thoroughly as possible. He takes 
great pride in his work. It is his craft. And I, we see this, it may sound like I'm joking about this point, but we see this when he comes back later with a baseball bat after the fix-its have fixed up the, the diner, after he busted it up with his bat. He comes back with his baseball bat and he's sort of looking longingly through the window. He has this same look of disappointment that Frank had when it got busted up. And you saw Frank looking at all of his years of hard work that had come crashing down around him. When that work was rebuilt, we see Carlos showing up, all of his hard work, his elbows probably got tired from swinging that bat. All of his hard Mm -hmm. work has just been reversed and we see it on his face. And that's why I'm saying, like, it's no understatement. This guy was a great actor, but- He did an excellent job. Yeah. And what a hard character to play because he's such a villain and he's so detestable for so much of the movie. Right. And you also end up seeing that he himself is actually being victimized along with a lot of other people in the movie, a victim of circumstance. And he even says at one point to Faye, I don't even know if we were going to be getting to this, but because of uh, Faye's mental state, she confuses Carlos with her late son, Bobby and refers to him over and over again as Bobby. And, and you see her outreach to him as kind of love from her to him. And Carlos is resistant to it. But there's that moment when he comes back in after the diner's been fixed up and she's talking to him, trying to feed him soup. And, and he looks at her with this earnest look and says, I'm smart. I'm going to be somebody. And that in contrast to what he'd been doing seems so, it's, it, it's almost seems surprising. But you're right, yeah. there, either, he does believe in what he does and he does want to do a good job. And you also see that towards the end of the film where he's talking to the person who hired him. Well, because it all, it all just, it takes such a churn when we see who's manipulating Carlos this whole time, doesn't it? We, 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 the camera really, again, pulls back, gives us this wider perspective of everything that's going on. You know, it starts with this zoomed in view of just this building and just the inhabitants, really just one apartment of the building, picture frame, inside of one of the the rooms in the building. And it zooms out, we get the whole building, it zooms out, we get the whole neighborhood. And at some point it zooms out, we see these developers that are really behind what's going on in the movie, the driving force that's motivating everything and giving us this ticking time bomb that everything's gonna be demolished and taken away. And yeah, when we see these people taking advantage of Carlos, paying him to do illegal, terrible things because they know he's desperate and they know that he'll do it because he's not only desperate financially, it seems, but also just desperate to get out of his situation and prove himself to somebody. And it's tragic. It's, it's truly tragic. Carlos is truly a, a, the definition, I would say, of a tragic character in the Shakespearean sense. Completely. Yeah, 100%. It's almost, you almost get the sense, once you see a bit more of his story and a bit more of the humanity within him, that even though he wants to do a good job and that good job might entail getting these people to, to leave the building so these developers can take over, there is a part of him that is conflicted and you see it increasing more and more the movie goes along and the more connected he becomes to the people who are there. There's a moment where he shows back up on the roof and he's got a frying pan, I think. And there, I, it's one of the, the, the evil guy that rides around in the limo all the time. I, I didn't catch his name, but he goes up there and he's the one inside of the coop when Carlos is trying to sneak up. <laughs> Kovacs is his name, yeah. Kovacs, yeah, that's right, Kovacs. I, I wrote this down because it made me laugh so much. And upon reflection, I feel differently. But the first time I heard this line from Carlos, it made me laugh because it was when I still felt, like the movie was still giving me permission to hate this guy. This guy's the villain. Right. You know, he's violent, he's terrible. He's a, he's a just evil dude. So I was laughing at this line when the 
Kovacs says something like, oh, it's pigeons or it's rats inside of here. And he says, no, it's not. It's filled with ghosts or spirits or something. And they're just trying to make me look bad. (laughs) (laughs) It's still funny. But upon reflection, I have a little more sympathy because, man, this is his. He's so obsessed. He's so focused on this that that's how he perceives this like he has to make an excuse for his failure it's ghosts it's spirits making me look bad i'm doing my best i noticed it myself that's work what'd you say that's right that i noticed that myself is that in through all of this it's not he takes everything he takes it so personally Every single time he's subverted from doing what he's supposed to be doing. It's it's the thing, the obstacle that gets in the way of him fulfilling the goal of being good at what he does. He so earnestly wants to be competent and seen as a competent person. It's really actually really touching. Yeah, David, I have a question for you. When we see the fixits reproduce themselves for the first time, when we see these adorable robo babies taking their first steps, how exactly am I supposed to handle that? It's too cute. <laughs> It's so adorable. Do you have well, an answer for me or the audience? Because it's really hard. <laughs> what are you supposed to think? Is that the question? How am I supposed to deal with it? I, <laughs> I, I, I actually don't have an answer with that. It's, it's every, every person for themselves. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any pets, so I like hugged a pillow. It helped a little, but not enough. They went, especially later on, one of them fell in a toilet bowl and it had a tiny grappling hook, David. David, it had a tiny grappling oh. hook. God, that it rescued itself. Tiny little three prong grappling hook. That's right. And then the other scene where the the, the parent fixes are teaching the babies to fly. And this is kind of back to the idea of them following a biological trajectory. Hmm. They want them to learn these fledgling fixits to fly. Their little arms catch on the edge of the stairwell and there are these little itty bitty tiny robot fingers that are holding onto the ledge. And it's so cute because their arms are extended. So they're like, you know, six inches down and you see the adult fix it with the saw and it saws that part of the stairwell. And it's like, wow, this is really cold, but it's, it's, oh, you can see the imperative of them wanting their young to learn to survive and be self-sufficient. It's actually kind of amazing. Yeah. Again, the, that buzz saw is such a funny visual because if the music of the background music were slightly different, we'd be watching a horror movie, not baby robot takes its first flight. The trailer for this movie is ripe for a re-edit. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I think I might I might try to do that as a project. Just try to like add some ominous, <laughs> like Halloween music, some John Carpenter music to to this trailer, and change nothing. There else. you go. And I think I think that's yeah, all right. I have to change is the music. None of the <laughs> none of the cuts, none of the edits. I think the same cinematography still works. I look forward to that. <laughs> so, Baby Robo's first steps is really a monumental moment, I think, in sci-fi. Can you think, David, can you think back to any other work of fiction, book, movie, TV show, anything with robots, where we see this, where we see robot parents giving birth to robot babies in this liter- in as literal of a way as Batteries Not Included gives it to us? Nothing. Not even close. I, I like, there's, there's, trying to think of any like a long gone star trek episode that even has something like that and i don't think there's anything hmm. it's, it's really unique and you also see when they're born their first steps because they walk before they learn to fly that they have the same legs almost like the they're like birds they have like that backward ankle joint 
and it it's kind of almost like uh, who who was it who did the um, was it the special effects was it Bruce Nicholson who also did Empire Strikes Back mm-hmm. it, it, you can see almost the same design of that backward leg look as the uh, the ATSTs the AT, exactly yeah, yeah it's the, exact which, same kind of like look. which they call in that movie they call them chicken walkers they don't call them that in the movie but that's what they're referred to like in the design books they're called right. chicken walkers ATSTs yeah that's right yeah, yeah that's and really so, yeah yeah. Oh, go on, go on. And they're very cute. They're, they're just very cute. That's that's all I can think of them. Yeah, they are. And it, but so this I think brings up the question of to what degree are these living organic things? Are they organic at all? So the way I really want to approach this question is: we see the the orange. I called them orange and blue. The two fixits. The the parents that we meet. Do they get actual nicknames from anybody? I know that the kids, the first two kids do. They get called Flotsam and Jetsam by Faye. Uh, I don't remember if the third one that sort of gets adopted by Harry, I don't know if it gets, the one with green eyes, I don't remember if it gets a name. But um, I think it's just the little one. It's it's sort of just referred to as kind of the the, the the smaller one, yeah. Yeah, the little one. I think that's what they call it a lot. But so orange and blue is what I'm going to call the parents. And they they show up, they're collecting metal parts. They have an adapter that they're able to plug into the into the wall, a 20, you know, 25 volt outlet or whatever, and get power from that that restores them in some way or or makes it possible for them to have enough energy or enough whatever to reproduce themselves. And they're also collecting, right. they're collecting metal things, they're collecting coffee makers, they're collecting different utensils and metal things, anything with metal or scrap metal and parts that they are using to both expand themselves. They're adding hands, they're adding different kinds of appendages that they need use for different things. But then they also use, it seems like they compile a lot of the scrap and parts and literally soup cans that they've collected into these children. So beyond the metal scraps and parts that they're passing on, when the robo babies are born, what else are they passing on to them? What are they passing on that makes them glow from the inside? I think the answer to that is back to what we are not really no the no explanation of the inside of the fix it, the adult fix it's kind of inner workings. That there is something, whether it's biological or dare I say spiritual almost going on within that's a physical representation of something there that has an essence. Because the Parts and the the metal scraps that they're collecting, they don't make them in right away, like in real time. What they do is they incorporate them into the belly of, I guess, the the, of the female fix it, and it goes inside of her, and it takes a while for them to turn into. It's almost like they have to introduce the ingredients, and then the inner workings of the fix it itself create these babies. So really, the process is going on inside. It's something we don't see at all, and I don't know. I, I it, there must be. There must be some kind of component that has a naturalness to it, but it probably is like an electronic biological sort of process going on. It's it's actually pretty fascinating. Yeah, and it's a good point that you brought up earlier that they they hide the movie hides the actual process from us, and it does it with it to set up a good joke where Frank is like, "What's what are, what are they doing? What's going on?" And Faye is like, "What do you think they're doing?" Right. That's a really it's a really great way to frame that. It it also keeps the movie PG, but it also keeps it a mystery from us, which I think it should. 
it's it's a deliberate choice and i think it's a very good choice as part of the whole decision making process of what how much are we going to show to the audience how how much information is the audience going to have at the end of this movie to explain what these are and it's like we've said a couple times or in a couple different ways it's just enough and not enough and it, it really rides that delicate line it really does and, it, and you wonder if the actual they, they could have chosen anywhere to go the fix could have gone anywhere so the question of whether they're they're an angelic presence in relation to the humans that they come to visit and maybe that's a component to when they choose to reproduce that they are either involved in helping put back together things for human beings or any any being and by having done that that begins the process of them borrowing and or recycling objects from those same people that they've helped and then creating new lives. Because there is a relationship with the human beings that happens before they in fact have their babies. Yeah, so it's kind of like they had to achieve this symbiosis in order to build a nest. And once they had accomplished that, once they checked those things off their to-do list, then they've reached this point where they can reproduce. They can um, move on to the next step of their evolution or, or life cycle. I like that because they really did fix something for each person in that building. Everyone had something broken and they fixed, each of them had those things fixed. And then the relationship started. Including Carlos, including Carlos. So do you think that what they're assembling inside of themselves quite literally is a brain, like a, a CPU that they are then putting, plugging into whatever metal body they've birthed from themselves, from their in, inner factory that that shapes it into the shape of the little one and Flotsam and Jetson. Right. And they also, in order to do so, they blow out all the, the energy of that building, which I assume there's about, I don't know, 10, 20 apartments in that building. And they blow the circuits of every single apartment, every single unit in order to do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't I have no idea. I don't know anything about this, but how much electricity is that? Because it seems to take a lot of power. Yeah, the CIA never shows up, but neither does Con Ed. And that made me a little Con Ed. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think they'd want to Very in character. This building at some point, right? <laughs> well, yeah, you see the dial rotating at one point so quickly. It's like this bill is going to be insanely high. Yeah, and and they know this neighborhood's falling apart. So you got to if if there's that big of a spike in electricity from one central location, you'd think somebody's going to come out and be like, "We need to find out what's going on here. Are you building something?" Some dude in a hard hat's going to show up, and be like, "What are you people doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> hey, is this a union job? Got to report this to the city. <laughs> okay. So this brings us if they're building if they're building a brain, a CPU inside of themselves and then plugging that into a body, a small body that then goes out into the world and collects more metal and expands its size until, you know, it reaches a certain size like we we originally see orange and blue. That brings us back to the question of is the mind the same thing as the soul. Representationally, this is, you know, we can get as deep philosophically as you want to or as shallow philosophically as you want to because this could be a sensitive question, but just from within the context of this movie or as as wide as you want to expand it, David, would you say that the mind is the same thing as the soul? A rose by any other name. Uh, You know, I think for some people, I think it's exactly what it is. Some people would suggest that the soul is nothing more than consciousness, right? And what is consciousness? Nobody really knows. It's still kind of a thing that people are discussing and, and traversing. I've been doing a lot of meditation recently with Sam Harris. He talks a lot about consciousness and about being aware of it. And him being an avid agnostic or atheist, I think his idea 
is that I agree with it semantically. The mind is as good as the soul. And you could also go the, is it Ray Kurzweil, the singularity approach of us melding our minds with some kind of a digital interface. If we were to transfer our essence onto it, would it therefore contain that which we call a soul? It's a fascinating approach to it. But in a way, that's kind of what you see with these fixits, that there is undeniably in the growth of them and in the presence of them, there is something that's as good of a soul as any soul because there is an essence there and it does care. There's, there is a connection with it. So yeah, that's the, that's the impression I got. Yeah. The, the, their ability to connect, not just with each other, but with other species and have, and achieve a symbiosis. That's, that's a really strong characterization of them. And that really distinguishes them from a lot of other movie robots or fiction robots. It was, the movie was even asking for like almost more of an animal relationship with the fixes. And there is a dog that I believe, I don't know if it belongs to Harry, it's kind of, do you remember that mangy mutt that's kind of in the movie? And yeah. yeah, it's definitely like one of Harry's friends. I didn't, I couldn't tell if it was his dog, but it's definitely like from the mo- the movie's telling us this is Harry and this dog are friends. They're good friends. They're buddies. That's yeah. right. And I, I was almost waiting for the dog to interact with the fixits. And I just don't remember. I don't think they did ever, but I would have liked to have seen that beautiful kind of interaction. <laughs> yeah. Cause the, the last thing these things are, they're definitely not pets in any sense of the word. They're introduced in a way where we immediately, our characters in this movie, almost immediately have mutual respect with them. They don't look at them as lesser beings, and they they grow to respect them more and more the more they interact with them. So they never try to treat them with any sense of, well, you know, they're here doing these favors for us. What else can we ask them to do? It's always like, they're doing this favor for us unsolicited. What can we do for them? That's always the question that the humans are, not all of them, but most, like our human heroes in this movie are always asking, is what can we do for these benevolent creatures that just showed up in our lives? If anything, there's almost a, there's a reverence for them. Like when Hume Cronin's first kind of speech to them, he what does he do? He recites a few different things, like something from the, the national anthem to the, the, the post, the post offices, you know, through rain, sleet and snow type of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, you can tell that his, he has a respect for them and there's no, there's no condescension. There's no, what can you do for me? Exactly what you said. It's, it's more reverence for the fact that they're there in the first place and gratitude. Yeah. Um, David, have you seen the movie AI artificial intelligence? I have. Okay. This is a recent revelation that I had after watching it for this podcast. The ending of that movie, I'm going to announce spoilers for AI at the beginning of the episode. So uh, I I will just do a reminder right here. Big, big spoiler for 2001 AI, the the extraterrestrial, AI, artificial intelligence. (laughs) Very, very similar naming convention with the title. AI, the artificial intelligence. (laughs) The ending of that movie we jump ahead 2,000 years in the future to a point where the ocean has frozen. Our hero of the movie, David, the android, has been stuck under the ocean for 2,000 years, but he's still functional. And these beings that are depicted as tall, skinny, big-headed, alien-looking things that show up in a weird-looking spaceship dig down under the ice. They recover David, and they're talking to him to try to retrieve his memories. The first time I ever watched that movie, I thought they were aliens from space. The movie, actually, upon rewatch and upon examining it and and looking at it more deeply, these are actually, and the movie tells us this in its dialogue, so it's just something I missed the first time. These are not aliens. They are actually evolutions of the robots that humans built 
that eventually outlasted humans when a second ice age came. I did not know that. Those robots continued building better and bigger versions of themselves until this is the pinnacle of them. These ones that are the tall skinnies in the weird spaceship, the blocky spaceship recovering David. And what's so the reason that David is so important to them in that movie is because he literally contains their entire, the history of when humans were still alive. So they're trying to recreate, they're archaeologists, they're trying to recreate the past. David is is their Adam. David is their, their progenitor. It's what they were, they eventually evolved into. And they have nothing but compassion for him. And it's an interesting conclusion that that movie makes, that humans died off because we had all of We had compassion within us and we had a lot of other things too, but the only things we put into our robots that were designed to look exactly like us were our compassion because that forced them to be nice to us because we didn't want them to be mean to us like we are to them. And that made them last longer than us through a second ice age and retained that compassion even for their own ancestors. So this movie, (laughs) to tie it all together, batteries not included, we're seeing robots that self-replicate, that have a family, that literally form a family, that are compassionate to one another. They, we don't know where they learned that. We don't know where they developed that. We don't know where they originally came from. But again, I, I do want to reinforce my original theory, um, or the theory that I'm debunking at the beginning of this podcast, which is that they are not built by us. These are not robots that we built. Do you agree or disagree with that point? That do you think that that the movie conclusively decides or tells us that these are beings with their own past that doesn't involve humans? I would agree with that. That's yeah. the impression I get as well. Yeah. I think when I first what was watching it, this is upon reflection, I agree with you. I think watching it, my I, I imagined could there be some distant relationship with humanity that they might have. But listening to you to, to you kind of explain it, I would agree with you that, that, that it is kind of a, it's, it's not connected to humanity necessarily at all. But there is something universal about them, which kind of ties into them being, I don't know, neighbors of the galaxy and whether or not there is that compassionate sense or essence that exists in other places. Because I can imagine if there is another civilization, um, you know, just to theorize, I would imagine that something very close to compassion or some something comparable certainly exists. Yeah, just based on a lot of similar sci-fi and, and other kinds of fiction from this time period, this contemporary with battery, batteries not included, without the movie telling me this, I just sort of got the sense that these are the the last survivors of their planet. Or, you know, these are like the, the Kal-El of wherever they come from. They're the last remnants. They're the only hope for resurrecting this species of benevolent things. We don't know how they got wiped out. We don't know what happened. And again, we don't even know if, it, if that's actually what the movie is saying is their backstory, but it's one that it's one conclusion you could draw of many because, because the movie leaves it open-ended, which is, again, a great quality of it. Very much so. And it, it almost goes back to the idea of maybe what I was mentioning earlier about why were they attracted to this particular building and these particular tenants in the first place and their kind of unique struggle because Mason is the one who's sort of our perspective as the audience seeing and hearing Frank say, oh, I think they're here because of us. And then hearing Marissa say, oh, I think they might be here because of me. And then Mm -hmm. she's the one who asks Mason, maybe they're here because of you. And there's that sort of universality of everyone having some kind of trajectory or path where there are broken pieces 
And when something so miraculous comes in their purview, the idea that we apply to ourselves, the meaningfulness of their presence and how they came about. Um, so I like that because it really does in a way connect them to the, a building and a, a group of people who might mirror their own path or whatever that might've been. David, we've talked a lot about this movie and we both love a lot of things about this movie. Is this movie a plus one, neutral or minus one for robots? No, it's a definitely, it's a plus one. When you, if you think about every, every instantiation of a robot, you think of all sorts of examples. The fixits in batteries not included sort of embody so much of what we love about the mystery of robots and also about their relation to us. Absolutely, easily think it's a plus one. I think the fixits are great representations of what robots can be. I agree. I would have been shocked if you had said anything else. If you, if, even if you had said neutral, I would have asked you, I would have had so many questions because these are <laughs> some of the greatest movie robots and just some of the, clearly some of the most benevolent, giving, awesome, magical movie robots. And they're very unique also. And they have a cool movie robot name, Fix-Its. So yes, I would, I would also unequivocally give them a plus one. David, I have two bonus questions before we wrap up today. Because this virus attacks the lungs. It's never more infuriating when you realize that your life has a price tag on it. The truth of the matter is we are in the middle of an apocalypse. There's no leadership. I went from being an ER nurse to you're a healthcare hero. I feel like a sham. Apocalypse Now is a podcast that asks if we are living at the beginning of the end. I'm Joanna Van Thine. Join me every week as I talk with interesting people and decide if we're all doomed. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Number one, David, this is a section of the podcast that we call, What's Your Snack? David, what's your snack? When you go to a movie theater, do you have a favorite snack that you either like to sneak in with you? Do you sneak a snack? Are you a snack sneaker? Or do you buy snacks when you get there, like so you can get hot, fresh popcorn? And sub question, now that you're, you know, we're all in quarantine uh, or various degrees of quarantine, (laughs) maybe by the time this episode is released, things will have turned around. But either way, when you're watching movies at your home, do you have the same, do you recreate the same movie experience? Do you have snacks? Do you pop popcorn? So it's sort of a two-part question, but what's your snack? My snack, the first part of that, I would say I do a combo. I like to go, I love the, I have a tradition and ritual of going to a Dwayne Reed or a CBS before movie. I'm weird. I like to go to the movie theater a good amount of time before the movie starts. It's a really special thing. I go on a lot of self-dates to movies. I've always loved going to movies on my own. Me too. And yeah. and it's like getting to the airport. I have to get to the airport way early. Exactly. Because the process of you never you want to avoid feeling stress for time. And you and it's for me, it's really it's my connection to being a kid. It's still the magical thing for me. It's still literally as magical as when I was a kid, especially because yeah, I'll go to a CBS or Dwayne Reed and I'll pick out usually I'll go either with snow caps or Reese's pieces. And this is what I'll do. I'll take it's usually the Reese's pieces. Let's be fair. It's it's so good. And I'll go to the theater and I'll buy popcorn. And what I'll do is I'll take the Reese's Pieces and I'll dump it in the popcorn. And I'll mix it around, a little salty and sweet. Um, as for the second part, yeah, I'm a popcorn fan. So we have an old school air <laughs> popper, popcorn maker from like the mid 80s that we use. So that's also kind of our, my you know tradition at home. 
Nice. I find that I'm a big popcorn fan. I love movie theater popcorn. I overpay for it a lot. I got a, I got the, I'm I'm on the A-list, David. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a Stubbs AMC premier A-list member. They talk about you guys all the time. I know. Yeah. I I, I didn't want to spring this on you because it makes people jealous when they find out my status, but, and and I don't mean to condescend to one of the lowly theater going peons like yourself from my cloud on high, but I'm I'm envious. I'm envious. But man, when you're on the A-list, you get a lot of great deals on popcorn. (laughs) And and so like, that was sort of my strategy for getting as much popcorn as possible. Like you buy enough and you get credit, you get free popcorn all the time. If it's your birthday, you get popcorn. So I take as much advantage of those programs as I can to get as much popcorn in me when I go to the movie theater as I can. It's just something about the, for me, it it kind of, I can tell the pacing of a movie. I can tell how into a movie I am by how empty my bag of popcorn is when I look down at it. Like how much am I shoveling thoughtlessly just handfuls of popcorn into my mouth? Or am I taking my time, picking out one one piece at a time because I don't want my chewing and crunching to be louder than the dialogue so I miss anything? You know, I can always tell like where I'm at with... Uh, with you don't my, want to distract yourself from the dialogue by your chewing. I get that. Yeah, with my immersion, my immersion of the film. <laughs> At home, though, I don't have a microwave and I don't, every time I've tried to pop popcorn on the stove, it's a disaster. So I usually eat meals when I'm watching a movie at home. That tends to be like my latest thing. So for this movie, that's appropriate. Yeah, this movie, I had a cup of coffee and a uh, bacon, egg, and cheese, actually, that I made. And I f- you know what? I felt like it actually was the appropriate snack for this movie because it's diner food. And that's what this, this movie is about, a diner that's trying to recover from an economic downturn. So it was very on theme. I think bacon, egg, and cheese fits. And also, I mean, listen, Faye, at, at some point in the movie, I think early on, they're talking to her about making food. And she goes, I don't smell any bacon cooking. So it's like a really nice little tag for what she's used to smelling in that diner. That's right. And that reminds me of, uh, there's a really great moment that I wanted to talk about during What's Your Snack, where Faye invites everybody in for breakfast. What did she make, David? Do you remember? What did she make them? Don't remember, actually, now that I'm thinking, oh, oh, wait, no, I don't remember. <laughs> I forgot. Candy omelets. That's Can- right. Candy omelets. We get to see, we see plates with whipped cream and like a bottle of Aunt Jemima on the table. Like one of the, you know, very subtle background instances of product placement in the movie. But we see them on the table. We don't really get to see what candy is in them, but I really wanted to. I wanted to recreate candy omelets. Oh my God, what would be in the middle of a candy omelet? (laughs) Oh man. You know what? I might take chocolate because I, so I like to make a um, banana cinnamon omelet. And it's, it might sound weird, but I can imagine if I put like some chocolate chips in there, it might be too much. Um, but, but I think somebody, a weirdo like me might enjoy it. Actually, you know what, if you ever make it, you got to tell me about that because I'm, I have a weird palate and I think I might actually, I might really, really like that. Bananas and omelet eggs actually doesn't sound terrible. Weird. Yeah, yeah. Especially with a little bit of cinnamon. Listen, for for, I will do this for my listeners for, I, I will commit to this right now. I'm going to make a candy omelet. Uh, so that I can report on how it tastes in our next episode. This could lead to an, a robot's first dinosaurs recipe book. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, because I, I could try like maybe uh, fruit flavored candies are better. Maybe sour candies, maybe chocolate candies. I got to try different categories of candies. So <laughs> There's going to be many omelets made. I, I'm looking forward to hearing what you report back. David, <laughs> final bonus question before we wrap up about this discussion of this movie. 
if we were to recast any two characters in Batteries Not Included with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, who would you recast? Would it improve the movie? Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. Okay. (laughs) I think we could say that Kovacs being recast with Danny DeVito would improve this movie 1,000%. Yes. Anytime DeVito is a villain, which is why I cast him as Carlos, uh, but anytime he's any villain in a movie, it's going to be, it's going to do the movie a lot of favors. You're right. As Carlos, way more screen time. And we would get to see that entire arc of that character. I agree. That would be wonderful. Now, I don't, to be clear, I don't want to replace that actor because his performance is perfect. Absolutely. Um, but just in the in the alternate reality version of this movie, where we're recasting with Devito, that's where I'm that's where I'm putting him. I'm putting him as Carlos. Where are we putting Whoopi Goldberg, David? Okay, so my first instinct is that Whoopi Goldberg would be the developer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the big, high tower like, puppet master. Exactly, the one who's like developing everything and is the one sending out Carlos and Kovacs to kind of take care of those last tenants. I can see her in like a really flashy suit. Like in that high rise with the the city landscape in the background, absolutely. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I would love to see. I would love to see Whoopi as Mason. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I just think like this successful artist that just has a lot of very creative names for things, a lot of creative opinions about things, but just with Whoopi's sass added onto that would just be yes. fantastic. And again, not to take anything like away 80s from... 80s Whoopi. Yeah, 80s Whoopi. We got, yeah, is that like Sister Act Whoopi? Or is that like right at the turn of the early 90s, I think? But I think that's early still, 90s. That I'm thinking Ghost Whoopi. Ghost Whoopi, Whoopi inside... Yeah, Prime Whoopi would have been great, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we definitely got to get their agents on the phone because this movie is ripe for a reboot. Uh, and <laughs> so we got to get... They want to be involved. David, yeah. were, were, do you think there was ever plans for a sequel for this movie? You know, it kind of sets it up for it. We, we can talk about spoilers, right? Of so the end of the movie where we, so at the end of the movie where we see all of the, I know we didn't talk about this, the, all the fixits themselves come from, whether it's from, uh, you know, just outside of our atmosphere or they're just in wait outside of New York City. That last moment before they fixed up the entire building after it's been burned down, there's hundreds mm-hmm. of fixits. So... Yeah, it's hard to wonder, like, what were they thinking? I think they, in a way, could have set that up for for a sequel. It just never happened. I think one alternate theory of what happened at the ending, why we see so many of them, is because once they got access to the electrical grid of Times Square that has so much power going through it, I feel like that might be what sped up their production process. They were able to replicate themselves at a faster rate than ever because they had access to this enormous, almost limitless power source. But again, that's just, it's just a theory because the movie lets us speculate. It gives us some details and lets us speculate on what that is. It gives us room, for sure. And I think this movie is so well put together and so well crafted that I, I don't know if a sequel ever was intended, and I kind of hope that there wasn't because I, I feel like this is somebody's self-contained vision and they wanted it to be just, this is all you get. There, you, you decide what the backstory is and you also decide what is the future of the fix-its. Where do they go from here? Because that's really up to you as the audience. And I, I, I don't know if, 
I mean, I, I I will watch a sequel of any movie that I love just to see what they do in the sequel. Um, yeah. No matter what I hear about it. And sometimes I just enjoy it. Uh, most of the time I just enjoy it because I want to enjoy it. And I'm seeing my favorite characters again. I would definitely watch a sequel to this movie, but I don't, I don't want there to be one. I, I don't long for a sequel to exist to this movie. Do you feel? Uh, definitely. I agree with you completely. It doesn't need it. And the amount of space it gives us to wonder about the nature of the fixits and what they end up doing and what the people themselves will end up doing in the future. All of that's left to us, which is exactly where it belongs. So yeah, I agree. Well, it's a very, very good movie in a lot of genres. It's very heartwarming. It's a good family movie. It's a good sci-fi movie. And it's a very, I think, under-known, uh, under-represented, under-popular under sci-fi movie. It's not, it's not as talked about uh, as, as some others. And I think it's a classic. And I think it's one that our, view, our, our listeners, if you haven't seen this movie yet and you are obviously the kind of person that doesn't mind spoilers because you listened all the way through to us reviewing it. See it for yourself because you, you'll, I think you'll get the same reaction that David and I had. I think you'll really enjoy it. It'll warm you from the inside and it'll just be a delightful thing to watch for an hour and a half. David, do you have any final thoughts on Asterix, Batteries Not Included, before we wrap up today? The, the last thing I can think of is that there's a few moments in this movie. I have a, I have a huge love for 80s backdrop artistry. And there, there are a couple of moments in this movie that I just, they do such a wonderful job and they might even be precursors to other effects or maybe they adopted the effects from earlier 80s movies that I really enjoyed. But there's the moment where the fix-it, when it first gets there, this moment stuck in my head for some reason. When it signals to the other fix-it to come down, you see the backdrop of New York. And there's something about... Even the illustration of 80s movie covers that you used to see on VHSs, there's something that relates from that style to the same backdrop we see. And it's even illustrated in the moment when the fixits are originally in the Riley's home. And you see the what I, I feel to be very charming graphics of the light in the darkened dining room hitting the candle holder on top of the dining table. It's so obviously animation. But there's something that I feel really, it feels so cozy. I can't think of a better word than cozy, of that look. So to me, the, my final thought is the aesthetic of this movie is so comforting. And I'm excited for people who haven't seen it to see it because it really, it sticks with you. Cozy is a great word for it. Asterix, batteries not included. Highly recommended movie, the coziest film of 1987. David. I like <laughs> David, I want to thank you for coming on to Robots vs. Dinosaurs today. Uh, you're a fantastic guest. I really love talking to you about this movie, unpacking themes and sci-fi philosophy with you, and talking about one of my favorite things in the world, which is robots. We This movie does not include dinosaurs, but I ask every guest, <laughs> what is a dinosaur? So if we could just sort of quickly talk about your opinion of what is a dinosaur. You know, there's a phrase that sticks with me from being a kid. I think of Lizard King. So when I think of a dinosaur, a dinosaur is, it's the king of the lizards. And I know that's not the taxonomy. I know that's not the biological, like exact. But when I think of dinosaur, I think large lizard, which I'm pretty sure is the Latin root anyway. So, yeah. Me too. No matter how much I learn about what dinosaurs actually look like, when I close my eyes, they look like Roberta the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. So, exactly. Classic um, image. Are you more of a robo fan or a dino fan? You know, as much as I have an affinity for robots, I would say I'm a dino fan. All my toys as kids were dinosaurs, and uh, Jurassic Park is top five for me ever. 
So it's just, yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, again, thank you for reviewing this robot movie with me. Uh, in the future, I hope to get you back as a guest and maybe we could talk about a, a dinosaur movie that you love or another robot movie that you love. But I would love to talk to you again and have you back on the show sometime. How does that sound? It sounds great, Lou. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to do it again. Awesome. Well, thank you, David. And uh, have a great have a great day. I never know what to say when I sign off at the end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You too, man. Enjoy your day. And uh, hey, everyone, go watch uh, go watch this movie. It's super great. The quickest way to end a miracle is to ask it why it is or what it wants. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to apocalypsepodcastnetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard.